Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders from different sectors every week. This week, we'll be reevaluating the role of healthcare and the relationship that large employers play in this equation. Our guest today, Randy Ostra, is the President and Chief Executive Officer of ProMedica, a not-for-profit, mission-based, integrated health and wellness organization headquartered in Toledo, Ohio. Now, Randy has 40 years of healthcare and management expertise and is regarded as one of the nation's top leaders in healthcare. He's earned a spot on several prestigious listings, which includes modern healthcare's most influential people for three consecutive years. Now, together, we'll review his life's trajectory from his roots as a young farming boy to getting his doctorate in management. We will discuss the importance of transitioning healthcare to take a much larger public health and well being role, as well as educating and working closely with large employers to solve for the social determinants of health. Before we get started, make sure that you hit the button below, that like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis so that you can be in touch with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Welcome to the show, Randy. Thanks for being with us yep. today. Great to be with you. Thanks, bud. You bet. Now, Randy, you know, when we first spoke, you, you shared with me uh, your backstory of being second generation Dutch who was expected to work in high school. Now, your story is all about personal reinvention that has really played out in your career as you've led enterprise transformations in healthcare. Can you please share your story with our audience? Sure. Um, glad to, and I'll keep it crisp. So, you know, uh, my parents, uh, my mom immigrated with her family uh, when she was a small child from uh, Holland to Iowa, small rural community. Uh, originally settled in New Amsterdam, New York City, and then through, of course, the Immigrant story in America ended out going to family in, in this point in Northwest Iowa. And uh, my parents were uh, both the oldest. My uh, father was born in America, but his parents came from Holland, and then my mother was born there. And as the oldest of families, um, they didn't have the ability to go to school. Um, neither one of them really, um, I think my mom thought she may have went a year or two. And so they were uh, strong faith hardworking, you know, a lot of that idea in those days was to make money and go back home eventually, in this case, back to the Netherlands, which never happened. But so grew up, um, you know, in that kind of family. So work hard, um, be respectful, be, you know, um, strong faith and uh, get a job, um, you know, out of, you know, at an early age. And actually, I think my first job was, I think I was in fourth or fifth grade. My dad got me a job. And it was at a livestock auction house. And uh, on Friday nights, I would pen animals, which meant I had, I had to show up at certain pens, open them up. They would um, 
drive the animals in, and then uh, I would lock the gates and things like that and clean things up on Saturday morning. So at an early age, and uh, the expectation was that I paid for my clothes and things. And, uh, you know, our parents were, um, again, didn't have the luxury of education, but prided themselves on education. So my wife, uh, who I met later, uh, grew up in a farming community close by. My hometown was 3,000 people, 50 kids in my high school. My wife probably 20 people in her high school. And really was this, you know, kind of American work story. And then fast forward, went to a small liberal arts religious college in Iowa. Probably all I knew about, all I could afford. And then from there, um, through some um, probably uh, great uh, advisors uh, along the way, just both when I was growing up and then um, in college, pointed to me to a, a variety of things. And I ended up um, actually being a science major had toyed with a couple of different things like physical therapy and coaching and trainer, trainers, ended up on a path to get a doctorate. Um, that's what my advisor told me to do in sciences. And along the way, um, ended up with a consulting company, um, working for a consulting company after um, going to school um, and getting a master's. And then at 30, we talked about this um, uh, right before I was 30 years old, uh, I was traveling with a, a physician named Carl Wagner who had started a company out of Sioux Falls that did a lot of work in small hospitals in the Midwest, including um, the uh, public health service, so a lot of the Indian reservations. We were traveling one day, I was 28, and he asked me what I was gonna be doing at 50 years of age. Hmm. And I kind of said, what? And he said to me, he said, well, uh, I would be disappointed if you think you're still gonna be doing this. So over a period of a few months, we had a long discussion about potential options and at Around 30 years old, my wife and I, with two kids, quit our jobs, sold our house, sold our cars, went back into hospital administration at the University of Minnesota and, and started over. So a um, lot of gaps in there. but uh, And then from there, worked in Minneapolis, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Alton, Illinois, and kind of the North St. Louis area. And then I've been in Toledo for over 20 years. Randy, <laughs> great, great story. But as I heard you, a couple things hit me. Number one, farming as a young boy. Uh, number two is that you just started over. And I think this really resonates with our audience because a lot of people are either in the process of starting over, thinking about starting over, or maybe afraid to start over. What do you advise people who are thinking about starting over? What, what, why should they not be afraid? if their heart's telling them to take action? Well, you know, I think there's, uh, in, in our case, you know, um, selling off everything we had, you know, we rode public buses, a lot of free things to do in the world, actually, when you're, when you're living frugally. And I think, you know, we've got a chance to talk to young people that are debating what to do, and they may have people telling them not to do certain things. And I think what we've learned, especially after the pandemic and during, the, during this time of the pandemic, is there's been a lot of, you know, uh, focus on life purpose and kind of why we're here and what we want to do in life. And I think that's, you know, when you think about, um, you know, the work on life purpose and thinking about how we get engaged um, and how we have resiliency, a lot of it comes back to having that purpose in life. And so I think the short answer for people is, is really to find a, a way, path, career that really allows you to, to fulfill your purpose. And I think, you know, there are ways to do that. So I would encourage anyone, um, you know, we took a big risk. We were young at the time. I look back on it, you know, now I understand why my father-in-law wasn't very happy at the time when we did all this. 
<laughs> but I really think it is. I think it's a matter of uh, being able to, to take those steps. And really, I think you just, you know, we talk about following your heart, but I think it's this idea of following and, and finding your life purpose. Well, thank you for that, Randy. You know, I, I can tell you that I've, I feel that my life's purpose is helping create future legacies. And I kind of feel in an interesting way, that's how you feel. Um, yeah. You are very much uh, connected to what matters to people. And in healthcare, we know it's all about people, in particular our patients, let alone our employees and the communities that we serve. And, you know, let's face it, healthcare, as other sectors are going through a lot right now. And, you know, we believe that there's two fundamental forces that are really driving uh, the change right now. This force of standardization where it's become less about providers defining what's in the best interest of their patients to this age of personalization, where it's much more about uh, the patients really defining what's in the best interest of not just the providers, but the communities that they serve. And, you know, this is not so easy, uh, but yet these two forces uh, need to find a way to coexist. How do we get there? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, we uh, call ourselves a health and well-being company. So uh, if you asked us five years ago, we would have said we were an integrated delivery system. And the reason we talk about being a health and well-being company is if you think about us today, you know, uh, we didn't get up thinking of ourselves as patients. You know, if you think about your individual health, you know, 20 percent of your health is really related to what we do in healthcare in the United States that consumes 20 percent of the GDP. And then 80 percent is related to the other personal determinants of health. It's related to, you know, um, the social determinants, which is about 40 percent. And these are the places we live, the opportunities we have, whether or not we have transportation, security at home, food on our tables, safe housing, adequate housing, utilities, childcare, all those things. Those things actually have more to do with our health and well-being. And yet we spend a fortune on the, the healthcare aspects. And if you step back from it just logically, and again, you, you look at now that what we've learned uh, post-COVID is we've under, um, you know, under, um, you know, funded uh, public health system in our in the United States. We spent a fortune on high-end clinical care, but yet when we see the day-to-day -day lives of people, we haven't invested in the tools that make their, their, their life at every age healthy. And so this idea that every age of life, every, every stage of life, your health depends on all these other factors, not related to clinical care. And yet when you walk into a physician's office or a hospital, we don't take those things into account. And it's, and it's not anybody's fault per se. It's just we evolved post-World War II uh, a hospital system in this country defined by the four walls. And really, I think the, the rub here is that um, all of us on the call today, we all have personal um, stories relative to health and well-being related to our clinical, our genetics, our social determinants, the environments we live in. And those are much more important things. So as we look and compare ourselves against other countries, we vastly have under, um, you know, uh, invested in those areas and we've overinvested in bricks and mortar. And, you know, we talk about the, you know, the, the healthcare industrial complex in this country, and it is, it's a really, really big industry. But I think it's, what's clear is we just have the wrong priorities and we need to be able to shift more resources to these basics of health and well-being. So I'd love to hear what you think the priority should be. 
Yeah, you know, um, I, I think when you start you start thinking about just again as you got up today and the things that matter to you in life, and it's all about personalized care. I mean, every one of us is different. So having access to services, you know, having access to be able to you know access things in a convenient manner. I think we've all you know a little more consumer focused than ever before. And the idea that you have to go to a hospital, walk in there, kind of lose your identity, be treated as a patient. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that really, you know, if you think about technology and you think about what we know, we think about inequities in healthcare, we, we think about the things, the technology that exists today to be able to take care of people. And largely, we haven't integrated that in our daily lives. Um, you would have expected by now we're, we're much further along. Hospital at home is a great example. 40%, some people believe 40% of healthcare could be delivered safely at home. Well, very unpopular with a lot of people. Why? Because we have to preserve our bricks and mortar institutions in our communities because so much of, of that has defined a community. So what we'd love to see um, is healthcare being responsible for the social determinants of health. Um, the American people built the American healthcare system. Um, they are greatly funded. They have tremendous resources. They have tremendous people. They have great volunteer spirit. Uh, and when they're given a task, they do it. So why wouldn't we ask them to take on a much more larger public health role, a social determinant role, and we think that's um, absolutely critical and key as we think about those sort of things in life. And so the, for us, that is really the things that we would love to see happen and the things that we believe should happen. So what gives Prometica such distinction in the marketplace, Randy? I know you're doing a lot of innovative things. You know, a couple of things happened that really, I think, changed our thinking. Um, you know, a few years ago, um, we invested, um, you know, we were looking at um, community needs assessments, which a lot of people do. And we saw um, a lot of needs around obesity. So we uh, invested in a variety of learning maps. And the idea there was to teach kids, you know, to eat better. Hmm. And so we hired trainers, created very large learning maps. I uh, spent a lot of money on it, put it into schools. And when we um, got into it a few months, our trainers said, you know, the problem isn't these kids. These kids aren't, you know, uh, you know, it's not a nutrition thing. They don't have any food. They're, they're hungry. So we went on a path over a decade ago. Hunger is a major health issue uh, in our country. We just happen to define it as a welfare issue and we debate that. It's a major, and again, to think about healthy moms, healthy babies. And so these are the sort of things we ignore in healthcare. So we started a program, we screened for food insecurity. And then over a period of time, over the last decade, we now screen for all the social determinants of health of our patients. Uh, and then we try to do interventions. And so we believe healthcare should own not only the screening, but the interventions. That's not a popular thought. And then to take it to the next extent, the same issues are in our employees. So now we're beginning to screen our employees for the social determinants of health, do interventions. And then alongside of that are also looking at the personal determinants of health. So again, um, the idea that all we're going to do is, is take care of you clinically, uh, you walk in our ER, we'll give you an MRI, we'll, expect, we'll, we'll spend all this money on, on you. You're going to walk out the door. You may not be able to afford what we, we give you relative to a pharmaceutical. You may be living in an unsafe house. You may not have food on your table, but we just spent a fortune on you because you hit our emergency room. Yeah, I don't think that's very logical. Yeah. So our idea is that we need to balance that out. We have to kind of, over time, course correct what we've built. We have to. Um, 
put more money into the public health and social determinant sector. It has to come from somewhere. So it probably has to come from healthcare, um, salaries, um, you know, administrative costs and all that. And plus all the waste in the system, there's tremendous waste in the American healthcare system. If we could retool that and focus it on these issues, I mean, who better to do these in these communities than these institutions that we built? And oh, by the way, it's, it should offend us that all we get is people worried about our clinical care, not all these other aspects of our life. We're really not treating people from a health and well-being perspective. Randy, these are big issues. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm inspired by the things that you're saying because they all make sense. But how does leadership change with these seismic changes that you're talking about uh, in an industry that has really followed a standard that was know, created over a hundred years ago. How do we get leaders, your peers thinking differently? Because these things take time. And I don't think that we have the luxury of time anymore. Right. Yeah. You know, um, you know, again, um, great people in healthcare. I think we've seen that with COVID, you know, yeah. our caregivers are, you know, um, you think about heroes in our world, especially through what we've seen in COVID. And I really think, you know, from just a leadership standpoint, we haven't given them the right tools to really do their job correctly. And again, we've created this bricks and mortar, very centric, hospital centric sort of model. And there's a lot of forces that really want that model to continue. So really, when you look at it, I think it has to come from a combination of, of forces. One is, I think it's, of course, the government. The government needs to you know, begin to, to force change. So we believe Medicare should mandate you know, screening of the social determinants. Well, that would be a very simple way to get everybody focused on those sort of issues. And then I think employers, I think employers um, increasingly now during COVID, especially are looking at the needs of their employees very, very differently. So if it gets the social determinants, it gets the personal determinants, a lot of issues relative to mental health. And again, all of that is outside of the traditional walls of healthcare. The one thing we've been lobbying for for the last several years, and we've had a lot of opportunity to talk to people um, in Washington, D.C. about it, is this idea of creating a national commission on health. Uh, a time-limited commission that would really look at a future model for healthcare. So where we are today, it's going to be a hard industry to change. But if we said 10 years from now, pick a, pick a year, we're going to begin to change the American healthcare model, allow people to begin to change. And we are now going to move down toward a much more holistic health and well-being model. And guess what, people? We're going to begin to reimburse different. We're going to have to have different expectations. Uh, and we're going to ask you to do different things. And really, so we've been lobbying hard to get this national commission. Um, and what we've heard usually is now's not the time. We've got these other issues. You know, we've had senators say, you know, oh, I'm working on price transparency. That's more important. I mean, if you think about that, price transparency, we want to make sure you understand the cost of health care that you can't afford. I mean, if you think about that, it, it really those are the sort of an issues uh, issues that we're focused on. And yet all these other social issues and things, you know, people go, well, that's interesting and we should do something about it. And to your point, you know, now's the time, because, again, when you look at bankruptcy in America, you know, people with cancer, they get devastated financially. Uh, it's really, um, you know, again, caregivers, great, but really have a broken system that that people really need to kind of come together and say, we got to fix this. You know, uh, just a comment and Scott, we're going to bring in here for some some perspective, but just listening to you say that some are prioritizing price transparency, that, that for, for services that people can't afford, that's about as extreme 
to standardization as it gets. And the other thing that you mentioned that I think that people are grappling with, especially executives, that business and society will forever be connected. Now, it's not that it ever wasn't before, but I think that this now this equation's never going to be broken. So, Scott, what are your thoughts? Where, where are we at right now, Scott? I guess what I'm honing in on that I'm excited to learn more about, to hear more about from you, Randy, is uh, this, this idea of starting over is a primary theme and its relationship to interconnectivity. And I'm going to let that percolate a bit more. But what I'd like to ask you right now is to, to maybe come back to just a quick point that I think we went over way too, way too, way too fast. Um, when you talk about the social determinants of health and how you've brought that into your own metrics for leadership and even just administration in general, right? Um, a lot of folks like me look at that and say, wow, that's remarkable. That's, that's unbelievable, as a matter of fact, because from my non-corporate sort of looking in through looking into the window, one thing I've always recognized and tried to understand better was the idea of externalities. Right. Well, that's not my lane. That's not my issue. I'm here to make these people have not this disease. I'm not here to work on nutrition. Right. right. Well, my question is to you as a leader is I'm curious. I can see sort of why you were able to do this. It started to come clear to me and I'll come back to that at the end. But I want your advice for me and for others, because I how did you go to basically folks who are taught to use externalities in order to embolden their own mission? right? Cast things off. Don't connect because that's how you can focus and be stronger. You're doing the opposite. How did you get boardrooms and board members and investors and anybody else around you to say, oh yeah, we're going to go ahead and bring that very expensive and complicated externality to the heart of our mission, social determinants of health. How did you do that? Yeah. You know, um, I'd love to say it was a master plan, but it wasn't. So, you know, it started with obesity and hunger and this idea that, you know, um, so we, we uh, when we started uh, on our hunger journey, we started to uh, uh, go visit some of the uh, hunger institutions and everyone's pretty much said the same thing. Like, what are you doing here? We've never seen healthcare before. And it was David Beckham from Bread, uh, Reverend Beckham from uh, uh, Bread for the World. After about three minutes, he goes, yeah, what are you doing here? And where have you been? Um, why haven't we had this discussion before? And so we did it just because we thought it was the right thing to do. And so, you know, you look at we actually built a, a, a inner city grocery store and a food desert because no one else would do it. And we began to do a whole variety of things, everything from food pharmacies where doctors could write scripts to short term food needs we could give to people. And it was really elevating discussion. So early on, we started very carefully, very quietly. You know, we told our people, let's not talk about it too much. And. Uh, as we've got more traction, um, we had some early um, uh, events happen that were that were kind of signals. Um, we had a retired physician who screened uh, positive for food insecurity. When that happened, hmm. it created quite a buzz with people. Like, here's a person you would not expect that's food insecure, but because of certain life issues. And really what happened is once people saw in their practices even, that they had people in their practices that were food insecure, they had no idea. Or we've seen that now with employers, not realizing their employees are food insecure. And then this whole variety of starting there and then asking all these social determinant questions. And, and, and then it became part of the things that we do and the things that we did. So it wasn't an overnight thing. And then 
and then just keep moving forward. So the initial reaction of a lot of people in healthcare, we had people tell us, I don't get paid for it. I'm not doing it. It's extra work. Now it's become, again, especially if you think about what happened with COVID and how COVID's impacted, you know, uh, folks that living in poverty, minorities, uh, especially people that have a lot of social issues as well. And so what we see now, it's in vogue. So everybody's doing social determinants. Well, you know, they're doing some things, you know, some may define it as sponsoring a farmer's market. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about really taking that aspect of a person's life, uh, putting on equal footing with clinical care, and then taking some responsibility to tr try to connect dots, provide intervention. And, you know, for our board, our board would now tell you absolutely 100%, this is what we do. And it's been kind of a 10-year journey. So it wasn't overnight. We've seen some traction uh, in the healthcare world uh, with the social determinants, but we believe a lot of it isn't nearly to the extent it can be. And what you worry about, it's a buzzword that will not really get embedded. And we think it needs to be embedded and owned by healthcare organizations. Thank you. Can I just add one quick thing? Um, how about, I'm just kind of curious because I get this. I love this. This is absolutely amazing and transformative, but like, um, how does this relate to profit and loss, the PL stuff? Like what where like to me, that's what I'm thinking. I just can't understand how you're able to get folks to take this big of a leap and 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 to 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 grow so much in this direction when in fact literally the, the standardized approach would say you're distracted and you're taking on liability and culpability that is not really necessary. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, we're we're a nonprofit, you know, we're large nonprofit. Okay, so uh, nonprofit we're, we're mission based. Um, even though, you know, Glenn said we're $7 billion uh, in revenue and we are, quote unquote, an anchor institution. So we're anchored in place. So these are the sort of things to, you know, to a point that we can do in our community. So, you know, you think about anchor institutions, you know, using our economics, our people to be able to do good things in our communities, you know, kind of go, goes hand in glove with, with who we are and what we do. And again, I think a lot of it has just been um, just in the communities that we serve, a lot of poor communities, communities with needs. You know, um, we have to come alongside a lot of people that are doing the work and we have an ability to connect what we do with what they do. And so, you know, it's, it's really now it's fundamental. So, yeah, we, we've spent some money. We've, we've actually got a lot of philanthropic support that people have, have actually given us money to do this work. And uh, so, yeah, it's um, it's been a process. I still think from a lot of folks, it's not innate to what they do. It's not in their DNA. They're doing it. We also have an insurance company and the insurance company is motivated differently than our providers. They want to keep everybody out of the hospital. And so if you have social issues um, and social issues, you know, end up getting you back in an emergency room, getting you back into a hospital. That is not what a, an insurance company wants to see happen different than a hospital group, you know, they want, they want patients, they want more and more patients, the better. So, so we've always had this little schizophrenic company and now we do a lot of work in senior care. And a lot of that is just making sure, you know, in, in a lot of these pockets, we're doing the right thing. We are trying to do the right thing relative to getting people at the right lowest cost point of care. And again, trying to figure out these interventions. If we have to shrink in size to be able to do that, you know, I think a board, got a board member here, they would say that's what we're supposed to do. You know, Randy, as you, know, you mentioned uh, large employers earlier, and it has become crystal clear that number one, we're all 
whether you're in healthcare or not, we're all in the business of health and well-being, and that large employers must prioritize prioritize health and well-being first. How does someone like Prometica? Uh, how do you help champion what that relationship should be with large employers? I mean, clearly, uh, given your infrastructure and your strategy, it would seem like a great way to help drive growth, but also help institute this thinking in a very genuine way as you're doing uh, with large employers that unfortunately, much like others in healthcare, may not be approaching it the right way. What are your thoughts? Because the, the way I see this is that whether it's healthcare or corporate America, we're all solving for the same things. We're solving for the individual and, the, and their new demands and needs that are influencing the ways that we're learning, working, leading, and living. Um, how can we become more strategic in healthcare with how to explore those large employer relations? Sure. You know, uh, again, when I mentioned we were screening for social determinants and then now personal determinants. Yeah. So we started doing that with our own employees. And we actually have uh, uh, a company we formed uh, with a professor from Michigan uh, 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 based in Ann Arbor. They had a company called Kumano that did a lot of work in life purpose. Uh, they had a product called Purposeful, and we have now created a product together called Resourceful, social determinants of health, personal determinants of health for employers. And the idea and the pitch of employers, and we've proven that with our own insurance company, if we do interventions in people's lives, like provide food and other things, we uh, reduce healthcare costs, we reduce typically ER visits, we increase primary care visits. And we've seen a financial impact in some of our populations. So the pitch to an employer is, we will screen your people for the social determinants. We will do interventions. We will also begin to have them think about life purpose. You will get um, happier, more engaged employees because of the purpose piece. You will uh, have you know, um, more retention. You will lower your healthcare costs and you'll increase productivity. We've proven to ourselves that these interventions lower healthcare costs. And oh, by the way, if you have a person that you're working with that's dealing with all these issues, as you can imagine, that impacts them at work. They can't leave that stuff at the door. So it impacts, you know, if, if their house is getting foreclosed on, they, their car is breaking down and they're worried about getting to work, all those things. And so what we found, even, you know, wellness programs don't work. Every employer would say, I'm spending a fortune on this stuff and I don't think it works. Our pitch to employers is, let's do this. Let's try social determinants, personal determinants. And then we're also working on some new things relative to racism and prejudice, which um, is that will be another piece later. But the idea to them, so, so the question for them is, first off, what are social determinants? So it's a new language. And what do you want me to do? So it's a little early, but we really believe this is kind of the next health risk appraisal. So we're in the market. We're talking to a number of employers. We're, we're testing it. Prometica has been our guinea pig. So we really believe that's that's the next piece of the puzzle. And we like employers controlling this space because they're much more motivated and, and we believe they'll take much more action than like healthcare organizations do. Well, let, let, let me share a, a, a little stat in, uh, about why there's such a need for what you do. And I know we have a lot of large employers that listen to our show. So here's one. Uh, when And this came from the IBM Institute for Business Value C-Suite series of 2001 
excuse me, of, of 2021. When asked if companies were supporting the physical and emotional health of employees, 80% of executives agreed or strongly disagreed. But when the same question was posed to employees, the figure was glaringly low at 46%. I think we need to start understanding that, number one, employees are expecting more. Two, our workforces are, you know, have five different generations. Uh, we have the impact of the cultural demographic shift that's reached its tipping point. Uh, and these are the same employees, Randy, that are expected to help drive business recovery. Right, but right. yet, their needs, their purpose, their lifestyle, their struggles um, are oftentimes not discovered. And so they, they, they uh, are suffering in silence. And so if I could just ask you, Randy, because you're, you're so eloquent in how you communicate complex issues. So here's one for you. What do you tell the C-suite of large employers that are looking at this topic through benefits management when it's about strategy, transformation, diversity, inclusion, and equity, uh, employee engagement, and the totality of the employee experience? What needs to change? Well, again, I think it goes back to, you know, um, the stuff that you're working on, the stuff that you're doing as a company, is it working? Um, are you able to keep your healthcare costs? Uh, are you addressing all these issues? You're investing money in wellness. Is it working? And the companies we, we've talked to said, no, it's not working. So, okay, well, let's try something different. Let's go at these root cause and is, uh, issues in people's lives. And oh, by the way, um, not only are you going to, you know, even um, uh, address these, you know, the idea that, that an organization is really investing this time and effort in their employees is going to be really, really positively uh, received. And so I think the, the idea is for employers to think of themselves a little differently. When, when we started uh, screening for our employees, you know, our, our HR department, like a lot of HR departments initially would say, is like, well, what are we going to do when they test positive? What if they say they're positive for, you know, housing? What are we going to do? And it's like, well, we'd rather know and try to help them figure it out than just naively go about our day and not address those issues. And I think that's the next step for employers. It's like, um, and I want to say it's, it's, it's taking responsibility, but it's a higher level responsibility to think about the total health and well-being needs of your employees. And I think the idea that we've been doing that, I think, you know, we've all done things and we, we all do the same things. I think we've been thinking that we've addressed these issues and really we've not. And I think the one that's come up most recently is mental health. And again, the fact that we don't have a better kind of longitudinal um, mental health system to offer people, um, both patients and employees, is really just another piece of the puzzle. And I, and I think that's the pitch for employers. And you get the right employers uh, on top of this, uh, this, will, this, will, um, this will quickly take traction. And if they don't, there'll be a mass exodus of talent. And that's and again, we're all we're all working hard today to keep talent. So, you know, and I think that's the thing. I think even just coming out of COVID, I think I think we've all realized there's more to life uh, and it, it life is a lot more complicated. It has a lot to do with how people feel and do they belong and, and their issues in life and their mental health and do they have a purpose? And these are all the sort of things that what we're starting to see is we can address those if you're willing to do something different. And I think that's. That's the idea to employers is you, you have, let's think about this differently together. Yeah. And, and by the way, I'm not going to go off on a deep tangent here, but I'll just make a commentary. And if you want to jump in, please do, Randy. 
uh, and then Scott, I'd like to get your thoughts and we'll close this, but, you know, um, we have to stop standardizing and manufacturing how people should think and feel about their health, about their own personal identity. And, you know, the part of what I've heard from peers, you know, your peers, Randy, in healthcare is, you know, what do we, What's all the work that we're supposed to do around diversity, equity, and inclusion versus the work that is is expected for us to do? And I'm not going to go down this this topic, but um, you know, I think the biggest issue that we have, and it goes into social determinants, goes into all the things that we're talking about, whether you come from a quote unquote diverse background or not, is is all this work bringing us closer together? Or is it really pushing us further apart? And uh, unfortunately, until some of the things that you've brought up happen, um, I think it's taken us to the latter uh, at a time where it needs to be in the former. So I can't thank you enough for what you've expressed today, Randy, because you are you illustrate um, the, the very ethos of what it means to lead, whether it's you're in standardization and personalization. And this is what I got out of what you said, that if you're in it for incrementalism, standardization will take you there. But if you're in it for transformational leaps, you have to find ways for these two forces to coexist. Scott, what are your closing thoughts? Um, I'm going to start with uh, language and go right to starting over, even though we're ending, right? Um, so, Randy, I really appreciate um, your attention to the importance of language, especially when you don't, you're not just saying social determinants, you're saying we don't just say that and move on it. We don't have to ever, but you actually talk about a teaching mission, a social teaching mission of, of, that you take on, that your organization takes on to help people understand the language. What does this mean and why is this important? We need new words. We need new metrics. We need new concepts to help us get to you to help explain why these are not externalities. So let me just say that the reason, like looking at all of this and hearing your story and even looking at that beautiful background of your corporate headquarters in Toledo that you reinvented or started over, right? I think that we're missing out something, Glenn, when we frame somebody like, like when, we, when we take Randy, we call him as, when we take a story as a lesson for starting over, I think we disempower most individuals because starting over that language, right, requires so much more, like just courage and just let it go. And like, it's a hard thing for most people to just do. They need help. But what I see is that he was able to do it in a way that I think we could emulate and maybe change the language to help encourage people to not be afraid of starting over. Because I tell you, you didn't start over, dude, right? You dove in. You didn't just say, okay, never mind, let's do this over again. I saw what you did in your career, but what you've also done with your organization as a reinvention, a rearticulation, right? So it wasn't starting over. It was basically an alignment of everything around you in a way that was far more productive for those not incremental leaps, but transformative growth of not just the organization or the people that work there, but of society. So let me just tell you by that frame, starting over as diving in, this is what happens. We go from intervention in healthcare to connectivity and checking in, to going in, right? We go from what? Clinical health to individual well-being and social well-being is integrated. We go from brick and mortar to the home where we feel comfortable and don't have to all put on the same exact clothes and sit at the same exact table and become a number as opposed to a person that's hurting. And we take HR and we turn it from compliance 
into well-being focus, right? So all I'm saying to bring this back is that you're helping us understand that we really do need to invest in language because the language of starting over is really no different than the language of what everybody else is just struggling to do today in working towards personalization. And that is connectivity, right? That we gain our power and our strength as individuals, as organizations, and as society through interconnections. And so um, whether it's people, the community, or the organization, I learned something about leadership today and that we need to help people not start over, but to recognize that they're already there and all they have to do is realign and see things in a different way. Um, Glenn, uh, that's where I'll stop. Thank you, Scott, as always. Very thought-provoking. Randy, any final comments? You know, the, one, uh, the words we use a lot uh, these days is uh, an, N of, uh, uh, an N of one. Hmm. So we're all an N of one. So each one of us is unique. Um, we all came here today with different clinical background. I mean, if you look at us clinically, we'd have different lab tests and things. If you did scans on us, it'd be different. We all have different social needs. We all have different purpose uh, issues in our lives or different ways we look at purpose. And really, you know, you talked about, you know, kind of looking at people and thinking about how we look at it on a personalized basis. So, you know, every stage of life, every year of our life, it's all about having a personalized health and well-being plan. That's a much broader than what we traditionally have done. And I really, that's, that's what you're talking about. I think what we're, we have is a very standardized system that we're trying to put people into. And yet it doesn't fit the needs of individuals when you think of them as, as individual beings with very, very different stories, different backgrounds, and different lives. Wow. Randy, incredible. Thank you so much for your time, Randy. It's been a pleasure. And I hope that we can do this again, too. And as we close every show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Randy, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution not evolution.